think it's a great question. Who sees the real you? Maybe even it's a good definition of a friend. It's the person that you feel the freedom to show up and be the real you with. Regardless of where you stand with faith and with God today, I think that all of us in our souls long for relationships and friendships like that. Because it feels like so many places in the world today, we can't show up as the real us. We have to put a mask on. We have to play a game. We have to present a front. And that is so utterly exhausting. And so the idea that we can be the real us and show up and find love and acceptance and encouragement, even on the days when we're not our best, is so attractive. And even the people who know us and love us in those places we know don't love us just as that person. They see who we're capable of becoming. And they love us on the journey towards that. And it's that topic that I want to dive into today with this new series, talking about the relationships that we have, the relationships that we want, and the relationships that we could have one day. And as I tend to do, I tend to think, so what is going to keep us from getting there? What are the things that stand in the way? What are the roadblocks that keep us from that? And there are several I could talk about today in our culture. One that I think is important to note is that there's a growing sense of isolation happening in our world today. Despite these devices and the networks they engage us in that promise us that we will never be alone, what we're finding is that people are becoming more, not less, isolated Vivek Murthy, who served from 2014 to 2017 as the U.S. Surgeon General, the leading medical expert in our country, he said that the greatest threat to American health is not obesity, it's not smoking, it's not cancer. He said the greatest threat to American health today is isolation. Just staggering. And we engage in these social media networks that promise us that we can connect. But what we're finding is it's actually the way that we're engaging social media that's providing the barrier. Studies are being shown that now indicate that the more and more you mindlessly scroll through social media, the greater chance you have to be depressed, anxious, dissatisfied, even feeling feelings of despair. Engaging the lives of other people from a distance and just looking at it actually makes things worse. And then what discussion about the barriers to connection would be complete without this? Politics. I mean, how many of us haven't had a friendship that's frayed over the last two and a half years over politics? How many of us don't have a friendship that maybe has been lost because we see the future of our country differently? And these very real barriers get in the way of those relationships we so desperately long for. And so as we talk about this series on friendship, I think it's important for us to define what friends mean. And my wife and I, we've been in this, I don't know, argument, disagreement about what a friend is for longer than we've been married now. And it started with good old Facebook. Because Facebook uses a term, friend, to describe anybody you are connected to. And so over time, friend has become a more loose term. For my wife, it's still a very specific term, but for me, it's not. And it's reflected in our Facebook habits. My wife doesn't have a whole lot of Facebook friends. 
And on a regular basis, she weeds her friend list. Like you might weed your closet. She just cuts people off, which is great for her, but it's terrible for me. Because every year on her birthday, people message me and say, Scott, I want to write on your wife's wall, happy birthday. And I can't. To which I go, how am I going to tell them they got weeded? They got defriended. I mean, how am I going to figure this out? And don't worry, we already had this conversation before I talked today, and she's cool with it, because she's like, yep, that's how I roll. Me, on the other hand, I I don't think I've ever weeded my friends list. There's people that I don't even remember how I know them that are on that list, and yet we still call them friends. Even that word, what does it mean anymore to be your friend? What does it look like? What makes that relationship different from all the others? And like I often do, because I'm a follower of Jesus and a pastor, I said, well, what about Jesus? What does Jesus say about all this? And so I went to the words of Jesus, and I was both encouraged and frustrated. I was encouraged and convicted by these words. In John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He goes on to say later, greater love has no one than this, than someone would lay down his life for his friends. In his final prayer, Jesus prays in John 17 as he's sweating drops of blood and feeling the stress and the angst of of the impending crucifixion he would experience, he says to God, I in them and you in me, that they, his followers, would become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that God, you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is saying the world will know that God loves them if we love each other. And then the apostle Paul in Galatians 5, 14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of these were translated from Greek into English. And in English, there's only one word for love. Love. It has to cover a lot of things. From the person you know the most to your favorite burger or coffee and everything in between. But in Greek, there's actually four words for love. And the word that's used here in all of the verses I just read to you is the word agape. It means divine love or love of the will or sacrificial love. It's the love God has for us and the love he calls us to love others with in his name. It's his unconditional love. And many of you have heard this word thrown around, unconditional love, agape love, God's love, and it can seem ethereal, it can seem intellectual, it can seem cognitive. And so today what I want to do is I want to give you a living picture of what this looks like. I want to put skin on it. And that skin belongs to this woman. I want you to meet Rose... Mapendo. Rose was born in Rwanda, and she experienced the violent genocide that tore that nation apart in 1994. She and her family fled Rwanda to the neighboring country of the Democratic Republic of Congo, hoping to escape the violence, and the violence followed them. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, she was kidnapped in 1998 along with her entire village, and taken to a prison camp. Within the first two weeks, all the men in her camp were murdered, including her husband. For the following 16 months, she and her seven children were starved and abused in unimaginable squalor. 
They were prevented from washing, brushing their teeth, or even changing their clothes. Rose came into the camp pregnant with twins, which she delivered herself, cutting the umbilical cord with a stick. Faced with all of these children and this incredible suffering, she prayed to God and asked God to end her life. And as she was listening for what God said back to her, she heard these words. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. Now, I've prayed a lot of prayers and heard a lot of prayers, but I can almost guarantee you that was not the answer she was looking for. Forgive? Love my enemies? She said that when she forgave those who were holding her captive, who had murdered her husband, she said a weight dropped off her shoulders and she said, quote, I felt like a new person. She began to treat the guards and soldiers differently. Those twins that were born, she named them after the two commanders of the camp. And when she finally emerged from that camp, along with her children, she dedicated her life to pursuing peace and reconciliation in Congo, Rwanda, and Burundi. In 2009, she was awarded the UN Humanitarian of the Year Award. And in 2015, the Muhammad Ali Foundation awarded her the Humanitarian Year of the Award. She embodies our big idea today, which is this. That Jesus said we'd look more like him through our love, not our knowledge. Jesus said we would look more like him through our love, not our knowledge. Rose's story isn't compelling because she knew Matthew 6, 14, where Jesus commanded his disciples to forgive others. She is so incredible and her story is so compelling, not because she had the knowledge, but because she chose to love in a sacrificial way, in an unconditional way that goes, that looks like something only God could do. And this should challenge all of us, myself included, because many of us along the way have lost sight of those verses I read and this picture of what it looks like to be more like Jesus, and we've replaced it with a different yardstick, a different measuring stick, and it's the measuring stick of knowledge. So many of us have spent time in churches where where spiritual maturity was measured by how old you were, or how much of the Bible you knew, or how long you'd been around. Interestingly, the same measurements that Jesus' great enemies used, the Pharisees, who were held up in the day of Jesus as the mature, righteous ones because they knew so much of this book and because they were so holy personally. And so many of us today, when we think about how we're doing with God, we think, well, how much of the Bible do I know? Or how old am I? How long have I been around? How long have I been doing this for? Or how busy have I been doing all the right things and serving people? And yet, we're reminded that we can do all of those things and still miss it. We can be excelling in all of those areas and miss it entirely. In a passage that I have made it my mission to pull back from weddings into its original context, the church, where it was written, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Jesus echoed similar words in his most famous teaching, a Sermon on the Mount, where he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, if all it meant to be mature and godly and growing was to memorize this book, then we could just cram like we're studying for the ultimate final. Just learn all the answers. And if you're not sure, just guess C. That'd be way easier. Learn all the answers, get all the knowledge right. But we're reminded in 1 Corinthians 13 that if we know all the answers, but we lack love, it doesn't amount to anything. Which is why this series on friendship is not a superficial topic. It's not an optional thing. You cannot be like Jesus and be a relational train wreck. You can't be like Jesus and be a jerk. You can't have all of this knowledge and the people who are closest to you sigh or groan when you walk in the room. And yet so often you and I have been around people who are admired for their spiritual maturity and godliness, which is really just knowledge, which is really just experience. And what Jesus does is he actually makes it the hardest that he could. What a punk. It'd be so much easier to just study the Bible and gain knowledge. It would just be easier to just show up at church more than everybody else. It'd be so much easier to just do yourself and and do all the right things, make all the right choices. And yet the harder thing to do, Jesus says, is to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. You can't say, I am like Jesus. And then everywhere you go on social media, all people see is hate for those who disagree with politically. You can't do that. It doesn't work. You're a noisy gong. A clanging cymbal. And I don't like this. Because I'm a learner. I'm a reader. I remember things well. I loved school. And the things that made me really good at school make it really hard for me to be like Jesus. Because Jesus is measuring according to a different standard. And that's why for some of you, the challenge is here in the church because it's been fuzzy. What does it really mean to be like Jesus? What does it really mean to grow to be like him? And somewhere along the way, somebody got you off the plot when they said it's just about knowledge. It's just about growing. It's just about learning. No, it's about taking those things and applying them in the hardest places. Another big challenge we face in the church, honestly, is impatience. I mean, how many of us have been this guy before? I have work to do and the software wants to update, you know? I love living in this moment. There are so many amazing things about being live today. 
But one of the hardest things is that living in this world makes me so impatient. I can download a file like that. I can get a hold of a friend like that. I can get the food I want like that. But the friendships I need, those move much, much, much slower. So slow. Make you a promise. You will not have the friendships you want by the end of this series. Sorry. But you can identify the path to the relationships you want over the next six weeks. If you're isolated, you're not going to find your best friend who you can pour your hearts to 24 hours a day in the next six weeks. But you can identify the roadblocks that stand in the way and maybe the person that you want to invest in. Here's the biggest challenge I see in the church. Pain. My friend Matt sat up with me up here last week and he made a comment that was so profound. He said, my scars from where I used to have fingers are on the outside. While everyone else's scars are on the inside. And so many of you have scars. Some of them are still scabs. From the wounds you've gotten in context like this. And it is so very hard for you to trust. Because what if they hurt you like people before hurt you? What happens if you trust them like you trusted them and they use that against you? And so even the idea of these kind of friendships where we can show the real us brings up pain because it reminds you of the times in the past where you tried to do it and it didn't go the way you wanted it to. So the temptation that you're facing, if that's you, is to wall up and let no one in so you never get hurt again. The only challenge is the love you most desperately want travels the same road. If no pain can get in, no love can get into. Frederick Buechner in his book, The Sacred Journey, said, you can survive on your own, you can grow strong on your own, you can even prevail on your own, but you cannot become human on your own. You can't become the person God made you to be by yourself. In the New Testament alone, there are 50 or 60 passages that talk about loving one another. Well, guess what? You can't do that by yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You got to have a neighbor. Care for one another. Serve one another. Be compassionate with one another. Forgive one another. That requires you to actually have friendships. And in our country, we are pursuing rampant individualism while our souls long for community. We will not become the people God created us to be by ourselves. And so with the risk of being hurt again, we have to pursue relationships. We have to pursue community if we want to become the people God created us to be. So this morning, I want to share with you what I'm calling three foundational ideas for this series. Over the next six weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about topics that relate to friendship. Next week, if you're a man, you need to be here because we're going to talk about the number one problem for men, which is loneliness. Let me give you a sneak peek. I've actually said this first service because I was worried about running into baptism. 
the leading demographic in America for suicide is men between 35 and 55. White, upper middle class men who feel profoundly lonely. We're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about how do you have hard conversations. We're going to talk about how do you love other people's weaknesses and let them love you in yours. And we're going to talk about the barriers that often stand in the way of relationships and how do you overcome them. Somebody asked me this week if I could start preaching some nice, fluffy Pollyanna sermons. (laughs) And I said, you're going to need a new pastor. Um, But I hope that as we talk about these, and as I invite some friends up on stage to talk about how we've worked them out in our relationships, this will help you see the way forward. So before we get into that in the next few weeks, there's three foundational ideas. The first one is this, that love is defined by the cross of Jesus. Love is defined by the cross of Jesus. It's important if we're talking about love that we say, whose definition are we operating from? We're operating from Jesus's because he defined it. In 1 John 3.16, we read these words. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is what love looks like. It's self-sacrificial. It gives itself away. Jesus, through his death, defined love. And in our culture... We define love as give and take. I give something and I get something. And it's love as long as there's back and forth. But if it's not back and forth, there's no love and I'm out. Love defined by Jesus is sacrificial. Number two, we are declared worthy of love and belonging through Jesus's actions. There's some of you that the hard part for you in relationships is you don't feel you're worthy of love and belonging. You won't let anybody love you because you don't think you're worthy of it. And that damages every relationship you're in. In the most famous of the John 3.16s, the original, we read, For God so loved the world. It doesn't say that God was so obligated to the world. God was so indebted to the world. God felt so guilty about the world. For God so loved, agape, chose, self-sacrificial, divine love that he gave his only son that whoever believes in that son should not perish but have eternal life. You are declared worthy Because of what Jesus did. You're worthy of great relationships. You're worthy of someone's love. You're worthy of belonging in a friendship. Not because you're a good person, but because God declared you worthy. And I think some of you need to hear that. Because people have made you feel unworthy. And their voice needs to be drowned out by his. And then number three, How we love others is our response to the love of God. The way we feel about God's love is shown not by the knowledge we have or the things we can quote from memory, but how we treat others, how we love others. Back to 1 John 3, 16. He said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to, and this word and can also be translated since, because, in light of, as a result He laid his life for us, and because of that, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The response to you being declared worthy of love and belonging is to then show that same love and to give it away. 
And one of the best books that I've read that's taught me about these words for love in the Greek language is C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. He talks about the four Greek words for love, storge, philea, eros, and agape. And in the book, one of the things he talks about is that every person who's alive right now will spend eternity somewhere. All of you and everyone you meet will spend eternity somewhere. You will either spend eternity with God and you will come to resemble him in glory and splendor or God will give you what you want and you will have nothing to do with him and you will spend eternity separated from him and you will begin to bear the consequences of that. And Lewis elaborates on that. He says, in light of these overwhelming possibilities that I just described to you, it is with awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Every person you interact with is immortal. And he says you should treat people that way. So this week on Tuesday, we typically have staff meeting on Monday at a church. We had it on Tuesday. And so I found this quote and I wanted to encourage the staff. Hey, we have a three-day week to get everything done. And if you're like me, when you get pressured and you're under a time crunch, you make your task list more important than people. That's my weakness as a person. Just FYI. If I get stressed, I make my, my job, my work more important than people. And so I said to our staff, I read in this quote, we read the longer version. Say, hey, this week, let's hold each other accountable to putting people more important than our work. And then as ironically happens, God started to have some fun with me. <laughs> About four hours later, I went to Starbucks to get some work done. And when I sat down, I put up all of the signs I did not want to be interrupted. <laughs> I opened my computer I had my phone open. I had my earbuds in. which are the universal sign, don't talk to me. <laughs> right? And so I'm sitting there, and a man comes to sit next to me, and he starts opening up his bag, and he has these very thick textbooks. And he starts interrupting me, and I pull my headphone out, and he goes, there's an error in this textbook. Like, really? And it was this really thick math, science, physics. I mean, I'm a pastor. I don't know that stuff. And so, and so he starts telling me about it. And I'm like nodding. And I put my headphone back in. And he interrupts me again. And I put my headphone back in. And the third time, I'm really annoyed. And I go, oh, he's no ordinary person. Four hours. That's all I lasted. <laughs> I lasted four hours. But that third time I pulled my headphone out, I said, okay, I'm going to treat him as if he's not an ordinary person. And he wasn't. You see, he had found an error in the textbook because he is an engineer. And he worked for NASA. And he helped build the Saturn V rocket. And he put a man on the moon. And I was treating him as if he was that important. How much would it change the world if you or I engaged every person we met as if they were not an ordinary person? How much would it change your friendships if you realized that through your relationships, you are helping people to one of two eternal destinations? What if you began to see the people 
that you're around, the way that God does? And what if you allowed him to declare their worthiness and value? Because in fact, he already has. Before we go today, I want to share with you some next steps that'll help you put some of these concepts into practice. And the first one is this. I want you to ask yourself, how well am I doing at receiving God's love? How well am I doing at receiving God's love? And you say, Scott, why is that important? Because I don't know about you, but I have some people in my life that are really, 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 really hard to love. And my love isn't good enough. I need more love. And in Romans 5, 5, the apostle Paul says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You and I have access to greater love than we naturally would have on our own as we receive God's love. The problem is many of us are not good at allowing God to love us. And because of that, we have a hard time loving others. So maybe the big step for you this week is to to begin your day before you grab for your phone or your to-do list or you go to help somebody get ready or get fed. You just begin your day with your, your palms open and you say, God, I receive your love. Thank you for declaring me worthy of it. Thank you for giving your life for me. Thank you that I don't have to earn your love. I just receive it today. Help me to give it away to the people I meet. 30 seconds could transform your relationships because you're giving people something bigger than your own love. You're giving them the love you received. Your greatest gift to others is what you've most fully received from God. And as you receive his love, you can give it away. Number two, I want you to ask yourself, what is determining my definition of love? How are you defining it? And is it possible that you've been defining it in a way other than the cross and what Jesus did for you? And because of that, you're having a hard time with love because you're operating from the wrong definition or an incomplete one. And then the third one, I want to invite you into the challenge I shared with our staff this week. I want you to engage people this week as non-ordinary people. Let me prep you. You're going to fail. Because I lasted four hours. But if you viewed other people the way that God views you, as immortal people, made in the image of God, worthy of his love and belonging, which he gave his life, it would transform all of your relationships. And that's the journey we're going to start on this fall. Growing closer together in a world that's driving us apart. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that we've done nothing to earn it. We could do nothing to deserve it. And yet you give it to us we confess that we have a hard time receiving it. There's a lot of us who don't feel worthy of it. There's a lot of us who would rather try to earn it than receive it as a free gift. So we pray that you would help us to do better at receiving it so that we have it 
to give away. God, it is so hard to cultivate healthy relationships in this world today. It's so much easier to be mean to our enemies. It's so much easier to judge and condemn others. It's so much easier to put walls up and not trust people. It's so much easier to just stay stuck in our pain and our wounds. It's so much easier to pick at our scabs instead of allow you to heal them so they can become scars. So we just confess that that, that many of us are a mess relationally. And that's because we're a mess when it comes to you. We pray that you would allow us to see ourselves, God, the way you see us, even as we're trying to see others that same way. That it's, it's your amazing grace that has taken us and our brokenness, and you've seen in our brokenness what we couldn't see ourselves, God. We're the broken vessels that you want to use as a testimony to your love to this world. And they're never going to believe that you love them. If we can't embrace your love and if we can't work on loving one another. So we just pray that you'd meet us here. That you remind us of what we've forgotten. That you'd introduce hope where we've instead chosen despair. That we'd un leash the grip that we've been holding to the places that we feel scared to let you or anyone else into. We pray that you'd heal us so we could be the wounded healers our world so desperately needs. And we thank you for these seven testimonies today of people who are in the middle of experiencing your radical transformation. And we pray that you'd keep transforming us too to be more like your son, Jesus. Thank you for bringing us here today. And thank you for encountering us with your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.